Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop war games, and role-playing games. And today, we're going to talk about bad game mechanics. Woo! Because there's nothing that nerds love more than their properties than complaining about how they hate aspects of those properties. That was an elegant way of trying to describe what I was thinking of. Some games are good, some games are bad, and a lot of the times, the reason that the games are bad is that the mechanics that make the game work are bad. Your game is bad and you should feel bad. In some cases, yes. (laughs) If you're making a board game and still using roll-and-go mechanics for movement, you're bad. You should feel bad. Oh my god. That's, I think roll-and-go is probably my top. Spoiler, spoiler warning. But first, I suppose we should introduce ourselves if this is your first time listening to the podcast. My name's Troy. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the host. And my name's Ed. I offer opinions on the topic, making me the co-host. My pronouns are they and them. And together, we're Knoll Country for Old Men, I guess. Knoll Country for Old Individuals. Yes, Knoll Country for Old People. We're millennials. We're definitely not old yet. Please. Yeah, let's not get into it. Let's not think about, like, how long ago Jurassic Park was released. Too long ago. (laughs) Closer to the Big Bang than to the current day. Oh, boy. But before we really get into bad game mechanics, we have a segment on this podcast we like to call The Weekend Hobby. Ed! What have you done this last week in hobby? I was moderately productive. I didn't get as much done as I wanted uh, while we were recording last week. I pinched a nerve in my neck, so I've had only uh, partial functional use of my right arm and shoulder and neck area. So it's kind of put a damper on some of my painting. But uh, I did finally get the static grass and other basing material on my newest Lannister unit. So they're officially done as opposed to 95.5% done last week. Um, I've gone back to working on crisis protocol cause I'm on kind of a Marvel binge, particularly moon Knight. So gone back to doing Marvel stuff and it's been a little bit of a jump going from the really quick and dirty, uh, Game of Thrones painting to the very precise and more caretaking that I've been doing with Marvel. So I'm not using like any inks or anything. I'm actually trying to do like actual shading and blending for those to give them kind of a comic book style. And then I started putting together a model for a local paint competition. That's, I guess you could call it like an advertisement for the Wizards of the Coast Frameworks set. Frameworks is interesting. I don't quite know who the audience for these models are. I can tell you who the audience for the models are. It's people who got started with the um, pre-primed models and now want stuff that has a few more options. Yeah, I guess that's true. Because there's not... In terms of, like, customization, it'll give you, like, one or two options. I haven't looked at all of the sets to see 
like how much variety there is. I chose the Night Hag, and it has like one other configuration that you can put it in. Wizards need some more experience with making sprue-based models. I assume if they decide to keep going with frameworks, they will get better over time. I mean, like the the WizKids deep cuts and all that, they started off pretty rough, but as far as I'm concerned, they're of pretty good quality now. So maybe it'll take off, maybe it won't. Um, the price is okay for what it is. Uh, if I had to choose, I would probably just stick with deep cuts. But I don't know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I don't think the quality for price is enough quite yet to get me away from grabbing deep cuts when I need something quick and dirty for a monster or a miniature. Yeah, like they had they had a the box for the Baylor miniature, which is 80 bucks, which is about the same as you would pay for a large uh much better quality demon model from Games Workshop. So, I mean, unless you really wanted Baylor specifically and not just kind of a generic demon prince, it's like, yeah, you're probably better off getting a G-dubs model. But, you know, that's my own opinion. In any case, I like to see competition in the model market, so that's fine. Yep. Competition's always good. I mean, I wish I had known that there were other games than Games Workshop when I first started miniature gaming back in, like, 2000 there definitely weren't as many but i'm sure that they were out there and it probably would have been a better gateway it was a lot harder to find them though back in those days yeah it's it's a toss-up you either find the accessible expensive warhammer stuff or you bribe your parents to get on the internet and get models from some unknown third company in the early 2000s internet yeah and then i also received my not quite my last Kickstarter before my self-imposed ban off the platform, which is uh, Sniper Elite, the board game uh, version of the video game, which is like my guilty pleasure video game. I don't know, there's just something about shooting Nazis and getting to see the bullet go through them in x-ray vision that just never gets old. I read through the rules, and compared to a lot of the other games I've gotten off Kickstarter, the rules are simple, they are concise, there's not a whole lot of weird Kickstarter shenanigans. It came with an expansion and a deluxe upgrade for a reasonable price. Uh, the mechanics look good. There's kind of a push-your-luck aspect to how the sniper works because the f you have to draw uh, tokens out of a bag to determine how your shot goes. And you have to draw a certain number of hits equal to how far they are away. But the more that you draw, the more likely that it is you're going to make noise or have your rifle misfire. But if you're further away and you reveal yourself, you're going to have more time to escape and the Nazis are going to have a harder time finding you. But if you're up close, you need less accuracy on your shot, but it's going to be a lot easier for them to find you if you somehow goof up your shot or if they just happen to randomly stumble upon you while they're patrolling. So I think it'll be a good one. Yeah, I think we'll have to play it a few times, and then uh, it'll be on Board Game Corner. Yep, it's a uh, as a product. It's got uh, some good, some good quality. I think it could use probably a second board for the uh, German player because I'm not good of keeping track of information that changes like that. So trying to. 
figure out where the sniper is, I'm going to easily forget or not keep track. But I don't know if that would break the game in terms of, you know, if you're just writing down where you think the sniper is, is that just going to make it too easy rather than trying to deduce, okay, he drew this many tokens. So he's at least this far away, but not maximum of this far away. I don't know. Either way, uh, I think it's probably one of the better things I've gotten off of Kickstarter. So good job, Rebellion Unplugged. So my weekend hobby, I ran my two Eberron games. Uh, in the first one, they went back to town after dealing with some stuff and found out there was a ruckus and the mayor was there and a bunch of people shouting and they offered to help with whatever was going on and the mayor informed them that the town had been like approached by a group of sky pirates who were demanding that they hand over all the goods or they'll burn down the city. So Arr. the party set up to like meet the sky pirates the next morning or at, at noon at the gate of the city the next day. And the sky pirates showed up with two of the little sky coach things, which are like, they're like ships boats, but they can fly. Um, they're little flying. Yeah. They're, they're small flying vehicles and the party proceeded to defeat the pirates that were there. Um, and they realized about partway through that, like, one of them was not... The person they thought was leading them was being referred to as the first mate by the other crewmen. So they were like, oh, well, we've got these little things. We'll be fine. And spent the next couple of days rigging up a ballista to one of them just because that sounded like fun. And then the session ended with the actual full-scale skyship showing up and the captain being like so this town has chosen death and starting to like hurl fireballs from on high sounds like a good time yeah they're gonna have a fun time with that the captain is a wizard slash artificer <laughs> the best of both worlds with a mechanical bone naga um steel defender sort of thing yeah i was hoping he was you were gonna say mechanical parrot no that would have been that would be cool too but no it's a he has a bone naga that is mechanical or at least partially mechanical and it is going to act like his familiar slash defender slash shoot spells it'll be cool i've got some crazy custom stuff built up for the pirate and what he's gonna do uh, the other group, having finished wiping out a small group of cultists, went to go report on what they had found to the head of House Caneth in Sharn, and went to his office, which is like inside a House Caneth production facility. I found a great map online of this like, you know, mechanical facility thing. And they're in there and they're talking to him. And then there's an explosion from the entrance area. And they have to, like, figure out what's going on. And it turns out that the Rakshasa that was running the cult has had enough of this. And has sent attackers into the facility to wipe out them and to wipe out the head of House Caneth. He had previously attacked House Caneth a couple of ways before. So this was, you know, built in. So they had to deal with some, like, good, like expert level cultists and a 
like mid-boss Rakshasa, and then some normal cultists and a brass golem. Fine. Yeah, which I kind of homebrewed. Uh, it gets repowered by lightning. It's not as strong as an iron golem, though, so it, they, they managed to take it down, but they had burnt basically all of their resources. They were out of spells. They were pretty beat up. And then the Rakshasa boss walks into the room having come out of, like, the lab where they were researching some powerful crystals and is, like, holding one of them and is just like, So, I've got what I came here for. You guys are losers. Bye. Plane shifts away. Get wrecked. Yeah, they couldn't have fought him. They could have tried to fight him, but they would have lost immediately. And they kind of knew that. So him just being like, yeah, losers, and then teleporting away. They did manage to save the head of House Caneth, uh, so they're going to get rewarded for that. And he's sending them to find out... Essentially, they need to get more information about those the crystal that the Rakshasa was getting... And so they're being sent to the jungles of Cubara to learn more. And now I get to do a jungle expedition sequence. So <laughs> that's something I've been sort of plotting for a while. They're on to Act 3. Woo! Uh, other weekend hobby stuff. I picked up a copy of Kobold's Ate My Baby. The classic beer and pretzels game of playing as a kobold and getting killed during character generation. Oh no. Yeah, it has that rule. So I might be running that at some point in the future. Don't know. It seemed like I'd heard a lot about it, so I wanted to get a copy. Sounds like good times. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Is It would be cool to play it in the future. Also, it's a pretty small book. and And that has been... The week in hobby, hobby, hobby. So on to our main topic, bad game mechanics. There are a load of mechanics in games. Rolling dice is a mechanic. Having hidden cards is a mechanic. Using a board is sort of a mechanic. Yeah. And so what we're going to talk about isn't restricted solely to board games or war games or RPGs, but kind of goes across all of them. And essentially, these are things that we dislike in games. And it doesn't mean that it's a mechanic that is bad in every single game, that every game with this mechanic should immediately be thrown out. Most of the time, it's a bad implementation of the mechanic that causes people to really dislike it. But we've got a list, and we're kind of going to alternate between them because I think some of us feel stronger about these than others. Probably. And the first one is excessively long player turns. So long. This is tr a mechanic that shows up in board games, role-playing games, and war games. In war games, this is usually the I go, you go sort of thing, where one player takes their entire turn, moves all their units, does all their things, and then, and only then, the other player gets a chance to respond. 
it's really off-putting when your opponent can spend 30 minutes doing something and you just have to stand there and maybe go get a cup of coffee or something. It 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 does not promote engage engagement in the game. And in my case, uh, by the time that other player is done, they've killed about half of my army. Yeah, and there's also the fact that in war games, it there's no the ability to react is severely limited because you just can't react, and so you lose a bunch of stuff without being able to do anything about it. In board games, I can think of a few off the top of my head that have player turns that are too long and should really be shorter, and there are mechanics in the game that make them that long. Uh, I love the Firefly board game, but the movement mechanic takes too long to handle. It would be easier if it was, like, computerized in some manner, perhaps. But also, they just need... They need a better way to handle the movement mechanic. And if that means changing up how the, like, space terrain stuff works, or doing something else, that maybe a die roll instead of having to draw a card every time. Bro, then you're just adding in roll and go. No, no, no. I mean, so the way the mechanic works in uh, the the way the mechanic in the Firefly board game works that annoys me is that when you move across like space tiles to get between planets, you have to draw a card for each square that you move. Mm -hmm. About half of those cards are just nothing happens. And then the other half are events. That that sucks. And then with the events, you have to like make a decision of do this thing or maybe spend resources or maybe this will end your movement or whatever. So, bleh. Whereas what I think you should do is make the movement and then say roll a die and if certain things come up, then you have to draw an event card. Yeah, that'd be a lot better. Instead of having to draw multiple event cards and theoretically getting like multiple events that you have to read, think about, and then do. It's just really time-consuming for everyone involved and slows down the game. Yep. So you need something to speed up the game because long player turns long player turns reduce engagement. Think about this again. Terraforming Mars is actually a good example because on a player's turn, you have a limited number of things you can do, and then it passes to the next player. So while you can, and then turns just continue, you get turns as long as you have resources to do things. So your individual turns are quite short, you just get a lot of them per round of the game. The one that comes to mind for me is, uh, oh, what's the Cthulhu one? Why am I blanking? Arkham Horror? Yeah, Arkham Horror. Playing that game with a full complement of players, it moves so slow. Yeah, those... The Arkham Horror games have a few mechanics that uh, are going to show up on this list. But yeah, excessively long player turns, bad mechanic. If you're designing a game, whether it be a board game, a role-playing game, a tabletop war game, if you want to keep people engaged, you need to keep the game snappy 
short turns, maybe lots of them, but make it so that both players are actively engaged while playing the game. And uh, if you're playing a wizard in an RPG, plan out your spell actions during the other player turns. Yes. Yes. I have instituted timers when the wizard players take too long and try to read the description of every single spell they have. Because you're in combat. This is a six-second round. You don't get to spend 20 minutes thinking about which spell is going to be better in this situation. Hold on a second. Uh, if you could hold on your hold on to your sword for a second, I gotta I gotta reference my spell book. And then five minutes later, the timer runs out, and their turn is skipped because they spent it thinking about what spell would be best. It sucks for the player, but also, I only do it if it's a reoccurring issue. Grease. The answer is always grease. It's the best spell. If you don't have fireball, then yes. Our second. Bad game mechanic is one of your hated ones. Player elimination. Uh, why do you have to make everybody else be bored? So player elimination mechanics are a staple of older games, especially. They are less common in newer games, I've noticed. But basically, knocking a player out partway through the game so that you now have fewer players involved. The problem with this is that, well, now that person's not playing the game. What do they get? What do they do? Uh, if you're our group, you watch some weird movie that was playing on the background while everybody else continues playing the game. Or you pull out your phone or you start playing a video game. Yeah, it doesn't work well. Now, player elimination can be good in a quick beer and pretzels like 15-minute-long game. Uh, there's a few that I like that have that. Uh, Coup, for example, where I believe we've talked about it. It is entirely player elimination, but I've never played a game of Coup that lasted more than, like, 20 minutes. So, you get knocked out, you just think about what you're going to do in the next round. But for a more complicated game, like, say... Axis and Allies. Risk. Axis and Allies, yeah. You get knocked out, the game might continue for another several hours. Although that's what you get for picking Germany. <laughs> Surprisingly, I've actually yet to take uh, act to play Axis and Allies. I feel like I should just for kicks and giggles, even though I know there are better war games out there. I mean, I played it once in the high school and I had a good time. Um, as the British, I managed to sail into the Baltic Sea and perform an amphibious landing and seize Berlin. <laughs> uh, which was great because it threw the Germans into chaos and they couldn't build any new units until they retook Berlin. So they ran all their units back. And then the next turn I took it again because they just had enough to like oust my forces in the city and not enough to properly defend it. So I kind of soft-locked them as they couldn't build any new units, and I could continually produce new stuff and just conquer Berlin over and over again. I feel like we should play the uh, 1916 version of Axis and Allies, where we play for four years and we nothing actually happens. Yeah, but you have to play that one in a trench that you've dug in your backyard. It's cold, it's wet, I hate this game. Player elimination mechanics 
are only good if your game is very quick. If your game is long, have some method for players who get defeated to come back either as vassals of other players or as just new players. Just have something that keeps them in the game and invested in playing it. Or if a player absolutely has to be eliminated, have that be the end of the game. Yes, have the player elimination be essentially, okay, that once a player's been eliminated, whoever has the most victory points wins. Something like that. Our next bad game mechanic is one that I personally take issue with, and that's complex encumbrance rules. I don't think I have an opinion on this one. This is a staple of role-playing games because role-playing games have a lot of rules regarding how much stuff your person can carry or how many items you can juggle or whatever. And it's, they're unnecessary for the most part because you should essentially just say, okay, you have a backpack, anything that fits in the backpack, you can carry. If your stuff can't fit in the backpack, you have to hold on to it. Blah, end of list. But having to like track weight of items or take a penalty for be having too much stuff, leave that in video games. You need a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you need a, a complex diagram that shows the exact uh, square inchage of your backpack, and then each item, you have to figure out its size, and then figure out, you know, how are you going to Jenga this uh, thing together? Now, I have seen, like, board uh, board games that have sort of an encumbrance thing where you have like a space on your board that is the backpack and you have to fit any items you want to carry into that. And that's actually a really nice mechanic because that provides a gamified benefit and like a choice that you have to make on what you're going to carry and can I fit this thing in there as well. But encumbrance rules in general are not fun. Yeah, the one that you described there, that's kind of like what the Dark Souls board game was, is is like where you have a certain number of item slots and you can hold, you know, X number of items and you can swap them out when you go back and forth between the bonfire. Yeah, that sort of thing is on the edge of like, eh. Simplify your encumbrance rules. That's all I have to say is, Come up with a nice, simple, clean way to determine how many items you have at any given time, and don't make it more complicated. The next one is a classic, and that's roll and go, or also roll to move. Oh. This is the mechanic that you would remember from games like uh, Monopoly where you roll the dice, and that is how many squares you move. Now, this can work sort of okay for some games, but for others, it can be incredibly frustrating if perhaps you need to roll a three to move, and anything else, you can't win. Like, if any game that requires you to roll a specific number to get, and, like, not roll over to get to the winning square is a bad game, essentially. That's my main issue with playing uh, Talisman, which also runs afoul of the overly long player turns, 
because you roll to move along the board and you have to hit certain spaces on the board to keep moving or like to continue the game basically. And so then you just end up doing nothing and you have to wait till you go all the way around the board again. So I'm like, why, why is this happening? It's a game mechanic that really is stuck from old, old board games where essentially teaching kids how to count was an aspect that the game was promoting stuff like Candyland, sorry. It's not something worth keeping in modern games. It's just a it's just bad. It's just bad, folks. The one time that I've seen it done I guess competently maybe if you can have keeping it in the game competent is uh <clears throat> excuse me, the zombies board game because you roll a dice and that tells you your maximum move and at least in my mind, it kind of makes sense if you're trying to navigate a zombie apocalypse, maybe for whatever reason, uh, you know, there's a lot of zombies and you're trying to be careful. So you're only moving two this turn, but you don't have to move two. You can only go one. And so it gives you back a little bit of that agency that you lose uh, from having to roll. Yeah, I could also see something like at the start of a game, rolling a die to see how many squares, to see what your movement speed is. Ooh, that could be interesting. Using that sort of semi-randomness to set your character's condition and then not having to do it ever again in the game. Yeah, I like, that's a, that's a good one. But beyond that, rolling and then moving that many squares is a bad mechanic and don't use it. The next one is custom measuring tools. This is this is war game specific. There's a reason we didn't adopt the metric system. Use it. I I like the metric system. I do things in kilometers. <laughs> I don't do things in millimeters on the other hand, so uh but games that have custom measuring tools and that you require you to use those measuring tools are generally kind of weak, especially if I'm looking at you, current edition of Kill Team. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. They start specifying, like, ranges of movements and abilities using symbols that match the measuring tools, and essentially, uh, their rules become unreadable and useless. Yeah, and if you measure the, if you measure the template on... For, for Kill Team, it's one, two, and three inches. It's like, how hard is that? Yeah, it it's trying to make the game more like a board game, but it's just pissing people off. Some of the Star Wars games aren't great about this either. Much as I love them, the range rulers are, you know, custom sizes and such, and have custom, like, zones. And... and Okay, I can kind of get it because it's not a symbol. It's just like range band one, range band two, range band three. But would measuring kill people? I don't know. The only the only real reason that people seem to have figured out for the kill team example is that because they publish the game in so many regions, it basically eliminates the need for them to convert between like metric and imperial units. And even though, you know, the triangle or whatever is actually just one inch, whatever country, whatever country you're publishing it in, it's like, just, just look at the, the shape. 
that's the only reason that I can really think of as to why they did that, but I I don't like it. Bad game design. Note that I'm just saying custom measuring tools here. Custom movement templates are good. We like those. Those make things like Gaslands and X-Wing really fun. It goes faster if you're not having to measure. Yes. Uh, using templates to move your units is honestly really cool and fun. Using weird custom templates to measure distances between things, not so much. Uh, the next one's one of yours, and that is excessive dice rolling. Fistful of dice. Yeah. Some games require you to roll a lot of dice. Rolling dice is fun. We all like to roll the math rocks. But when you have to roll like 40d6 to see the outcome of a thing, that's too many dice. You need to simplify that somehow. I'm looking at you, Warhammer. Yep. And also technically, I guess, Shadowrun. Shadowrun RPG is notorious for the amount of D6s you have to roll to do things. Also, in terms of excessive dice rolling, I guess I have to kind of grudgingly put Advanced Squad Leader in here, because you roll dice for literally everything. And it's like, yeah, it's only a 2D6, but the amount of dice rolls that you have to make, it kind of it kind of slows things down. But Advanced Squad Leader is of a different generation and a different mindset of game design. So, uh, I kind of give that one a pass, but it's like, man, that's a, that's a lot of 2d6 that you're putting through that dice tower there. Yeah, it's not just excessive numbers of dice that you have to roll for, say, to determine the outcome of something. It's having to roll dice to determine the outcome of everything. If you're designing a game, you need to think about the dice as something to be rolled when it is important that there be an element of, like, success or failure. You don't need to roll the dice if you're doing the basic stuff, but when it comes to something that's going to be important, then and only then should the dice come out. I will say one one clever way of fast dice rolling I saw somebody do for Advanced Squad Leader was they had this little contraption. It looked kind of like a uh, old-school push down coffee grinder and it had a little fan and when you push down on the dome the fan would blow the dice around and then you just take your hand off of it and the dice would be rolled oh sort of like what was it uh boggle yeah uh no uh sorry i think has has that where it's like a little pop thing okay yeah i've seen those around before so basically you just push down on that the fan blows the dice around and it rolls them for you and I mean, putting dice into a dice tower is like the least amount of physical work, but it does make dice rolling surprisingly fast when all you have to do is push the button and it rolls the dice for you. Yeah. I will say there are some games that the rolling of ridiculous amounts of dice is an element of the mechanics, and it's good. Uh, Steampunk Rally being my favorite example, because in that, you roll the dice and then what you rolled on those dice is what powers your creation. Everybody rolls the dice in one big go, and then you don't have to roll dice again until the next turn when it comes around. It uses rolling dice, it, like rolling handfuls of dice, as a mechanic that is fun. Or another example I can think of is a war game that I've tried called Tomorrow War, which 
there's actually a lot that I like, uh, but the shooting and defending mechanics require that you roll different amounts of different types of dice. So it's not just Warhammer style of taking a fistful of D6 and throwing it down. Every time you shoot, you have to calculate, you know, how good are these troops? How well are they supplied? And you may need to roll a D6 with a D12 with a D8, and it changes from round to round, and it that gets excessive. So I would I would count that in as excessive dice rolling, because you're not it's not the number of dice, but it's the changing the the actual dice mechanic itself that gets old after a while. I'll still say that it's one that we should try. I think there might be some elements of that game you would like. So the next one is one of my issues, and that is player judges. I'm neutral on this one. So this is for things like apples to apples or cards against humanity or what, joking hazard? And this is games where... They're almost always social games, but the games where whatever you do is then judged by a, one of the players who, like, determines which answer is the best slash funniest slash most offensive slash whatever. Um, and I find these games, I find this mechanic to just be weak because it... It's not even really a game anymore. It's just a social interaction at this point. It's a gamified social interaction. Yeah, I I don't like the player judges mechanic, and I wouldn't consider it for any sort of serious board game. Uh, the one exception to this is Sheriff of Nottingham, which is turns it into more of a like bluffing mechanic, where players take turns being the bad guy, the sheriff, and trying to, like, bluff past him and smuggle stuff into the town and stuff. And that has a whole lot of rules and interesting ways that make the same sort of one player has to judge everybody else's stuff into a mechanic that actually works because it's keeping score and there's, like, monetary values trading hands. Whereas most player judges, they're just gonna... It's just weak. Also, I think games like Super Fight and stuff also use this mechanic, and I don't like it. I I don't even know if I would call Super Fight a game, because you're basically just paying $30 for a list of prompts and saying to your friends, uh, would Batman beat Godzilla? No, he would get incinerated by Godzilla's atomic breath. How many times and do we have to go over this, old man? <laughs> And that's literally the game. And I guess they, I, there must be some element of it that being cheap and easy to produce made money for somebody because I see games like that pop up a lot. But it's like, why? This is just sitting around asking your friends questions. You don't need cards to do that. Yeah, so I, I don't like the player judges mechanic. I'm, I'm okay with it. Sometimes it can enter it can have some strategic elements if you know the people you're playing with on what they will find funny versus what they won't find funny yes but ed you don't like social deduction games which is our next one no i don't 
I am not a very social person. I struggle with social interactions. And I just generally do not find find it fun. I prefer there to be like a f- set of rules that we're following. And I want the game to be determined by those rules, not on how good or bad my ability to interact with other people is. Well, all right. So social deduction games are games typically where one player or more has a hidden identity and players win the game depending on if they can figure out who is that person with the hidden identity. Oftentimes there's bluffing mechanics or um, some sort of events that you have to play cards into or do stuff with. And it becomes, you know, a issue of figuring out who is the one lying and who is the one cheating. And this has a lot of social aspects of it. I like these games, actually. I find myself to be very good at being the traitor or the secret spy or the robot hiding in the room. I are robot. So I enjoy those. But I can see how they're not as much fun because there's no real tactical element to them. Yeah, I'm... Or there's a very minimal tactical element to them. I'm just a weirdo in general, so it it makes life difficult. <laughs> so the next one, and this is for me, is games without a clock. And I'm using clock in the most broad term here, and this is mostly board games and war games. But games that don't have a sort of like ticking clock mechanic or an end state mechanic where after a certain number of rounds or a certain amount of resources being harvested the game ends things like risk or monopoly or even access and allies i guess that you can just play forever as long as people are willing to keep going because you can get into positions where you're essentially tied and no one can win and no one can lose that's why you have to begin a race to the sea and hopefully encircle the Germans. Yavor. See, I like games that have some sort of mechanical aspect that says after X number of turns, the game ends. Trying Infinity, the miniatures game, has a three-turn thing. There are three turns each there's a top and bottom of each turn and the players go on those. But after three of them, the game ends. Whoever has the most victory points is the winner. I forgot how short that game is. Yeah, it's remarkably short. Uh, Star Wars Legion is six turns and then the game ends. Warhammer 40k has started to have a lot more shorter turn sequences. Uh, it used to be that the game could go on until one person accomplished their objective or wiped the opponent. Yeah, I think originally, usually if you wanted a clock, you had to play some kind of scenario. But if you're just throwing armies at each other, there really wasn't any any set turn limit. But I think now even just your regular open play is all uh, six turns for the most part. I think most of the time it's six turns plus like a roll at the end of six turns to see if you get a bonus turns. 
But yeah, some sort of mechanic that keeps games from lasting for 12 hours. Even Twilight Imperium, which is one of the longest games that I have played, has a, like, I think an eight-turn limit, where after eight turns, whoever's got the most points wins. If they haven't already gotten the... If no one's already won through the various cards and victory conditions that the game has. So, yeah, having a mechanic that ends a game after a certain amount of time is good. Uh, That mechanic can be a ticking clock, like we're talking about, where, you know, you've only got three turns before game ends. Or it can be something internal to the game, where just the way the game is played causes it to end quite soon after a certain point. Azul is a fantastic example of this. The game ends when someone makes a horizontal row of five blocks. Checkmate. This means the game can only end on turn five or later. But once you get to turn five, if no one's done the thing, then pretty much it's up to every player as to whether they want it to end on this round because everyone's going to have the ability to play a block and complete a line somewhere. Uh, Most games of that do not go beyond six rounds at most. Yeah, I can't think of any games off the top of my head that just never really seem to end. Well, uh, Talisman, like you said, has, you know, it doesn't have a real timer mechanic oh yeah that's right yeah talisman can run long um zombies can run long but technically like the ticking clock is the helipad that you have shuffled into the tile deck advanced squad leader it has a set number of turns and the turns themselves can be pretty long but usually it'll become evident about halfway through the game of who's actually going to win. And you can either concede at that point and say, yeah, there's no way that I can fulfill these objectives. Or in my case, usually I like to keep the game going just as a matter of practice. See, you know, what can I do in this situation? Yeah. Arkham Horror, for all its other faults, has an amazing ticking clock in that... Doom! Yeah, the Doom track. After a certain number of turns... The Elder Gods awaken, you get teleported to a final boss battle, which you will lose. Or, in the case of the one god, you, the game just straight up ends as soon as he wakes up. Oh yeah, uh, Naraholtep, I think? I can't remember. It's the one that kind of looks like a big beholder, I think. Oh, as Azathoth. Yeah, that's if it. Azathoth wakes up, you've lost. Game over. Try again. And the last one of our bad game mechanics is guessing games. I don't want to guess. Don't make me use my brain. I right, Ed, explain what you mean by guessing games, because I'm thinking this probably isn't, uh, we're not talking about, like, Clue here, right? No, I'm thinking more games along the lines of, like, Dixit, where you're given some kind of clue and you have to try and figure out what either what the answer that your opponent has like on their card is trying to give based on 
based on whatever clues they've given you. So like Dixit, you put down the tiles with, you know, various art drawings on them. And the player whose active turn it is, they have a card that has an answer on it. And, you know, you have to try and guess what do you have written on that card? Another one that's, I guess you'd call it like a quote classic example is like Pictionary. I'm bad at Pictionary. Oh, there's one I just had in my brain and I, I dropped it. See, I quite like these games. Uh, another one I can think of is Mysterium, which is sort of Pictionary, but you're solving them, which is uh, Dixit, but you're solving a murder mystery. I like these games. I think they're entertaining. I think that the they use an aspect and a mechanic that is very different from other games, so I can understand why people wouldn't like them. But I enjoy them. I think it's a good mechanic. Yeah, I think I think for me it's just also same with like the social deduction games is just struggling with being able to interpret what other people are trying to get at. Because at least for me, when I communicate, it is a very, I try to be very direct in what I'm saying. People who know me in real life could either confirm or deny that, but that's at least how I try to make my points. And I will respond with image of a man being chased by a knight down a hallway covered in books. Uh, I got nothing. And that's why I like those games and you don't. Yeah, that's what that means. We're going to go with that. Uh, in Mysterium, that card always signifies the library, essentially. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because it's a art card that comes up, and I have seen it used to signify the library, like, over and over, because there's books, there's the knight, and the carpet is red, and the library has red carpet, a knight statue, and a bunch of books. Good to know. So everyone uses that card for the library, if they can. You don't always have that opportunity. And yeah, those are bad game mechanics. At least in our opinion. It's your game. You play and like what you like. Eh, but but don't like roll and go, and uh, don't like player elimination unless you're doing a short game, and custom measuring tools can get out. Yeah, those ones, uh, I will get. I will get banned if I have further comments. No one's going to ban you. How can they ban you? You're the co-host. I don't know. But that's essentially been our... But that's our discussion of bad game mechanics. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today, I think Ed is going to tell us about Flashpoint. Which is a board game about firefighters. Oh, Flashpoint. Yep. So you have a, uh, a board, it's got a depiction of a house and I think an office on the other side. And it's a cooperative game. Everybody's playing as a firefighter and your goal is to get as many or hopefully all of the survivors out of the building before it collapses. Uh, you have a number of like little... I don't remember exactly what they're called, but basically like points of interest. And you have to go through the building, make an action to, you know, flip over this token. And it will either be a survivor, a pet, or nothing. And 
And if it's something that you can save, you have to get it out of the building and take it out to the ambulance. And once they're all out, you know, the building can burn down for, for all that we care because people over property. But uh, at the same time, you have to try and keep the building from burning down because the more structural damage the building takes, either through the fire spreading or through explosions, will cause the building to fall down faster. And once you meet that threshold of it's taken, you know, as much damage as it can take, the building collapses and the game ends. And uh, basically you lose, except for the one person, you know, that you pulled out of the building. Yeah, it's very similar to Pandemic, but focused on firefighters rather than curing global diseases. Yeah, and you can get you can get crazy scenarios where, you know, the fire will spread and then you'll make a, a bad roll and it will just explode. And then that explosion, it spreads out because it'll affect the tiles around it. You know, it'll blow through a wall and then it'll hit another tile that's already on fire and that will explode as well. So things can go from being just okay to, oh shit, really fast. Like a house on fire. Yeah. Yeah, basically, which is where the name Flashpoint comes from, because it's like, oh, you know, it's a little fire, it's burning, and then all of a sudden, uh, your living room looks like the surface of the sun. Yeah, that's not good. Try to avoid that if you can. Yeah, there's uh, those are pretty much the basic rules. There's some more advanced rules that involve the ambulance and um, fire trucks outside that have fire monitors on them so that they can douse the building from the outside. There are various player characters that have different abilities that'll help uh, fight the fire or assist the other firefighters or help the people inside. And then there's a number of expansions that add in things like uh, hazmat, uh, water rescue, and I'm struggling to think of the other ones off the top of my head. But there's been there's been several expansions. Uh, but if you're looking for a rather unique I guess, quote, in theme board game. I haven't seen too many board games about firefighting. Uh, give that one a try. Yeah, it's a pretty solid game, and firefighters are good. They run into buildings when things are in trouble. Certain other public servants don't do that. All firefighters are good until proven otherwise. Yes, they, they started a baseline good. You can only go down from there, so watch it. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's our show. As always, thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter. Look at our Instagram. It's at Knoll Country for both things. Uh, like, subscribe, give a heart or a thumbs up or reblog or whatever you do on your podcasting app. Um, support your local game store. Ed, what do you got for us today? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Adam Madness. As always, I am sporadically posting things up there because I just haven't been able to do things consistently lately. But you'll see some Game of Thrones and some Marvel up there. And then, again, I forgot to come up with a fake Null Country product. So just give your money to uh, some charities, hopefully either uh, LGBTQIA plus charities, reproductive justice charities, or uh, Ukrainian support funds. All of those are good options. Yeah. And as always, go Knowles. Go Knowles! <laughs>